0: Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 24A, an interview on Grover Cleveland and reelection revenge with Mark Summers. I'm excited to welcome Mark to the show today. Mark is a professor of 19th century US history at the University of Kentucky and the author of numerous books on the era, including Rum, Romanism and Rebellion, The Making of a President, 1884, and The Era of Good Stealings, which might be the best history title I've seen in quite a while, that's awesome. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about an election that's unique in American history, the election of 1892, because Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison, this is a rematch between a sitting president and the predecessor he had defeated four years earlier. Uh, And given that there's a lot of talk right now about a potential rematch between Biden and Trump in 2024, this just makes it a really interesting election to look at. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for your time. No, you're most welcome. Thank you, Kenny, for having me. My pleasure. Uh, I'd love to start by looking at the two candidates in that 1892 election, Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison. What were these two guys about as presidents? Well,
1: Grover Cleveland was elected first in 1884. He was an upright, downright, honest man with an enormous amount of nerve. People said that he had so much backbone that that's why he stuck out so much in the front. Uh, He had been governor of New York, he'd been mayor of Buffalo. Uh, He was well known as a vigorous performer and and a man with an enormous amount of political courage. In 1888, when he runs for re-election, he runs against the Republican, uh, former senator from Indiana, Benjamin Harrison. Uh, the, country, uh, in, in the big issue that year is the tariff, the tax on goods coming into the country, which is probably what ends up defeating him, but it is a very close contest. At the end of the race, and again, this may sound like deja vu, Uh, Cleveland gets about 100,000 more popular votes than Harrison does, but he narrowly loses the electoral college because he loses New York and he loses Indiana. And a lot of his friends would suggest he lost them because of double crosses, betrayal and outright electoral fraud. So obviously by 1892, uh, the Democrats are ready for a rematch. And in that rematch, Benjamin Harrison as president is running for another term and he's going to end up being defeated. And it's not really going to be very close for a lot of good reasons, uh, which effectively ends Benjamin Harrison's career.
0: I'd love to talk more about uh, the Cleveland, especially that loss. You mentioned he loses to Harrison in uh, 88. But he handles it like with such equanimity. I mean, he is at the guy's inaugural thing. He's holding an umbrella over the guy's head in the rain. Was that just all for show? Or was Cleveland like from the word go being like, I am plotting my revenge.
1: Oh, no, no, I I think that that's a good question. No, Cleveland basically behaved like a person with manners and a president. (laughs) If they're defeated or if they go out of office unless they have a really ugly grudge, is going to show up for the successors inaugural. It's just the way it works. Uh, James Buchanan for for Lincoln's inaugural, for example. Uh, And and so, of course, Cleveland would show up. And and Cleveland never really made a fuss out of the fact that uh, technically he had lost the electoral college and that was it. I think in 1888, he probably decided he was going to retire I don't think he really thought he was going to go back and do uh, politics again. In fact, I think he was thought he was going to go into Wall Street and become a lawyer and make uh, a lot of money, which, in fact, is exactly what he did. But what is different is there's an awful lot of people who felt that Cleveland was the only person that could reach outside of his party. that could pull in people that had been Republicans, the reform minded and the like, and his reputation as an absolute squeaky clean honest man really went for a lot. Uh, so it, it made it much more likely that under those circumstances he win in, in 1892 than, than anybody else. Uh, he also had a lot of support from the richest and most powerful uh, uh, businessmen in the party because they were very afraid that whoever would win the nomination would be a person that would completely mess with the money supply. And they were very afraid of that. And Cleveland, on the other hand, was absolutely, you know, rock solid in favor of in favor of holding on to the gold standard. All that stuff made a difference.
0: All right. So Cleveland, he rides off into retirement. I'm going to make some money. Life's going to be great. I've got a young wife popping out a lot of kids, you know, starting a family. And then for some reason, he does decide to run again. Do you know where that comes from? Where does that desire uh, begin to emerge?
1: Well, in large part, he's like so many people. He feels that the country is in trouble and he's the only person that can fix it. I think that's really the, the, the biggest reason out there, uh, because by 1892, Benjamin Harrison's administration is in pretty considerable political trouble. Uh, There's an enormous amount of unrest out in the West and among a lot of people that feel that the Industrial Revolution is not sharing its wealth uh, in the way it ought to. Uh, There's a sense out there that the Republican Party is is a party that is hostile to the many immigrants already in the country, that it is a party that is filled with people that think that their morality ought to be the law of the country. And what you need is a president, that the Democrats said, who can stand for election reform, who can stand for civil service reform, and who can stand for tariff reform. And that's what Cleveland is for.
0: What what do you mean by election reform?
1: Uh, that's That's an easy one.
0: That's an easy one to answer.
1: Now, today. When you go into the voting booth, uh, it's a natural kind of thing. Yeah, you know, you probably pull the curtain and then you get to choose between candidates, you know, in column A and in column B and column C. Standard thing. And nobody knows how you vote, right? I mean, standard. That's not the way it worked back in 1888. In just about every state out there, what happens is the political parties pass out the ballots to people which means that what you got you can't split you have to vote the democratic party ticket all the way down or the republican party ticket all the way down and it's not secret in point of fact when you go to the polls uh people are going to be able to figure out who gave you that ticket and how you voted now think about that in terms of intimidation you're a manufacturer you're an employer what are you going to do Obviously, you're going to say to your workers, if you, you know, if, if you vote for Grover Cleveland on Tuesday, don't think of coming back to work on Wednesday. And they'll have people at the, at the polls basically making a list and checking it twice. That's number one. Number two, if people are passing out ballots and then handing them in, it is so easy to buy votes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> look, you, you, you know, you know what the Senator Simon Cameron said when he defined an honest politician, right? An honest politician is one who, once he's bought, stays bought. (laughs) Well, that's the same case with voters. I mean, ultimately, you can give them a dollar out there and say, or $10 and say, vote this Democratic ticket. But if you put a secret ballot, once they get in the booth, how do you know? But if you're handing out your party ticket, and that's the only one they got, you can watch them as they go in and as they deposit that paper ballot, and you're home free. It, it, it's a natural way to do it. Uh, and, you know, and, and there's all kinds of other ways around it. I mean, one of these people named Big Tim Sullivan, basically, a, he's a boss, a boss in part of New York City. Remarkable character, wonderful character. Uh, essentially, even when the ballots are folded up, he knows in advance whether this ballot is one of his or not. Because what he did before his his particular ballots were passed out was he scented them with peppermint. <laughs> so, be, so his guy, election poll guy at the front can sniff him and see if it's one of Tim's. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a standard thing. Well, that's what election reform is all about. What you want to do is have a situation where you have an actual secret ballot, what we call the Australian ballot. And that's one where you can go into the voting booth and you can pick among different parties and you can split your ticket if you want. You can do just about anything with it. And that's what Grover Cleveland stands for. Because remember, that's part of the reason that his supporters think he lost in 1888. Ah. Because in Indiana, yeah. uh, well, it's, it's called the Blocks of Five story, okay? okay? A little bit before the election, a Republican operative in Indiana, and Indiana is an absolutely pivotal state. You've got to carry it if you're going to win the Democratic. if a Democrat's going to win the presidency. He can't do without it. A Republican operative sends out a letter to underlings basically saying, OK, when you buy the voters, group them together in blocks of five and march them to the polls so we make sure they get there and they put their ballots in. Well, the only way you can do that is with this vote buying You get a secret ballot and this isn't going to work anymore.
0: Right. right. So that's the idea.
1: So that's that that's what election reform is all about.
0: Yeah, it's funny. When you said election reform, my first mind went to. But uh, Harrison, and the Republicans were trying to protect voting rights in the South for African-Americans. But the Democrats were in a very different reform against a very different form of crime and, and t- tinkering in the election. So, oh, yeah.
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a very sure. Harrison and his supporters would like to protect black rights in the South. You're absolutely right about that. And their right to vote. But they can't, they can't get it through the Congress. They get it through the House. They can't get it through the Senate. Uh, senators are always contrary and refractory. And by 1892, they know it's not going to happen. But if you're a Southern white Democrat, your idea of election reform is some kind of ballot that makes it virtually impossible for anybody Black to vote. And that's your idea of election reform. Because your argument is our real problem, they'd say, is all of these people, they're ignorant, they vote the way they're told to vote. So what we need to do is we need to have a secret ballot. But of course, if we have a secret ballot, we're going to have to add to it things like a a literacy test, the grandfather clause, a poll tax, something that touches white and black alike, but is basically going to mean that uh, white people vote, black people don't. And already that's beginning to happen in some of the southern states, not all, but some of them. And after 1892, it begins to just go hog wild, uh, essentially to try to eliminate those people that the Democrats know will never, ever vote for anything but the Republican ticket. It's a pretty big power grab, but it's all done as
0: reform Oh right right that that magic reform word whatever works for my party is the type of reform i'm interested in oh yeah um okay so this election it's taking place right in the middle of the gilded age and Mm -hmm. i've been trying to kind of convey and understand what america was like at that time you have this crazy fast economic development but it seems that almost all the benefits are going to the rich the conditions for the poor are as bad as ever if not worse than prior generations. Can you elaborate on that and paint a picture of what the Gilded Age was like for Americans? Like, is that fairly accurate or is there more, is, is there a picture that can be painted of what this experience was like for your typical Americans? Okay, let me see what I can do with that.
1: Gilded Age, the whole meaning of the term is that it looks bright, and shiny and beautiful and golden on the outside and inside it's made of base material or lead. I mean, it's a long-standing term. Uh, And essentially what they're saying is, this is the age of incredible progress and miracles. We're talking the first skyscrapers. We're talking the invention of the telephone, the phonograph, the beginning, uh, at the end of the period of movies out there. It's in many ways quite wonderful. And and people can buy consumer goods for less than they ever did before. Uh, I mean, from everything, from, you know, canned peas to ketchup, to, to cigarettes, to just about anything. But the real benefits and the wealth is going to the richest people rather than to the people that are in the unskilled working class. If you're a skilled worker, if you've got a craft out there like a blacksmith or something, you're doing okay. If you're a white collar worker in these businesses that now need a lot of people to handle stuff like the paperwork, you're not doing badly. And that's why actual real wages in terms of what they'll buy are actually going up during this time period. But if you're an unskilled worker, and most people are, or if you're an immigrant that comes over here that barely knows the English language, then you're doing very badly indeed. Uh, And we're talking in in terms of poverty out there, we're talking about people that are, say, seamstresses working for an entire week, six days, and maybe some of Sunday, maybe 12 hours a day, and their total take home pays about six bucks, I mean, for the entire week, which is less than a living wage. I mean, this is the kind of thing you got, and you can find this in any other way. And and it's 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 not just a matter of money, it's a matter of safety. If you're a coal miner, for example, on average, three coal miners get killed every single day, all through this period, why? because it's cheaper to hire another coal miner than for the owners to put in uh, factory equipment of any kind. I mean, that, that's a natural thing. Uh, if you're Andrew Carnegie, you're making cheap, steel cheaper than you ever did. That's great for building railroads. It's wonderful for skyscrapers. But you just walk in through the gates of the Carnegie Steel Factory, and you can see the people out there with signs that say, blinded by hot steel, please give. Uh, there's no social security. There's no unemployment insurance. There's no protection for these people. So the lower down you are, the worse this age is. And the less anybody seems to care that's got the power to do anything.
0: Are are either of the two parties even trying to offer anything to Americans? Is anybody trying to fix this uh, rampant inequality?
1: Well, they would say they were. Yeah, (laughs) They They would argue it. And in some ways, they are. Uh, you know, if the Republicans had had their way, uh, they would have put through a bill that would provide government aid to education so that black schooling in the South would be up to the standard of the rest of the country, because the southern states are mostly really skimping on anything. They're, they're spending virtually nothing on on uh, on, on black with kids. And, you know, the illiteracy rate there is like 20, 30 percent. It's enormously high. And if you ask them, they'd say that the tax on goods coming into the country is protecting American workers' wages against being cut and such by having to compete with, uh, with people in Malaya that are doing work at two cents a day. Uh, and, and that's all that there. And if you ask Democrats, they'd say at the local level, at the state level, they're the people that are talking about factory safety laws. They're the ones that are actually talking about trying to shut out foreign contract labor that'll work cheaper. They're the ones that are talking about no Chinese. The Chinese must go in this country to protect the American working class and so on. But if you ask most people at the, in the working classes, they'd say that none of this is really making much of a difference. And if you're a farmer, well, it's even worse. And that of course is where the populist party comes in. Uh, that's why there is this enormous discontent in 1892.
0: And, and I, I was just about to ask you about the populist party. Can you elaborate on what they are about and where they come from? Okay.
1: Let me see if I can I can explain that. Populism. You want to look and see where it is anywhere where you got the prairies west of the Mississippi River, just about anywhere in the cotton south. That's where populists are going to be their strongest. Why? Where do they come from? Well, what they come from is, you might say, in part, the miracle of modern machinery. I mean, look, a guy with a scythe out there, he can do maybe five acres of wheat while that wheat is ripe and cut it down. You get yourself a big harvester combine kind of thing, and you can do hundreds of acres. What does that mean? What does that mean happens to the price of wheat? The price of wheat tumbles. It goes down. And the same thing is true about cotton. More land is open to cotton by the railroads than ever before. And what does that mean happens? Well, at the end of the Civil War, cotton sells for 25 cents a pound. By the 1890s, it's selling for 4 cents a pound. And anybody who's not a big planter needs at least 8 cents a pound just to break even. So more and more white farmers in the South are turning into tenant farmers that can't hold on to their land. And farmers out West, they're hurting. There's a story about this. And it's a good one. It's out in Kansas. You know, there's a schoolhouse. They have a debate, you know, a nice one, winter night, you know, a little house on the prairie type stuff. And, And the basic debate is resolved. Republican government has given us unexampled prosperity. Well. The first guy gets up and he's arguing in favor. He says, my friends, you know, look, we have more miles of railroad than the rest of the world put together, which of course is true. Our products are sold everywhere. The roast beef of old England may well be canned in Chicago because our products are bought by everybody. There's no question that we have more prosperity than ever before. And then the guy to argue against it gets up. He doesn't say anything. He goes over to the buck-bellied stove. He opens it up. It's what heats the room out there. He takes a he fills the shovel and the coal scuttle. He shovels it in. The fire blazes up. He slums it, or he says, "I rest my case," and he wins the argument. Why? Because it's a farm community, and what he's shoveling into that coal uh, into that stove isn't coal. It's corn is cheaper for the farmers to burn their corn than to buy coal with it because their prices have gone down so far uh they're you know they're making like you know 10 cents a a bushel for corn that they used to make 30 40 cents a bushel for and they're hurting and the parties have no answers uh and they don't have anything to say i mean I mean, my goodness, you got you are in Kansas and you've got a, you've got a candidate out there, and what's that candidate gonna do? That republican it's gonna be a Republican candidate. My friends, remember the Civil War 30 years before. Oh, I fought in the field against the <coughs> against the rebels and the Johnnies, and I'll continue to fight them in the Congress, the rebel brigadiers. Well, yes, Congressman, but what what exactly are you going to do about the high railroad rates that are uh, costing us so much money? You know, the railroads that basically run the legislature, my friend, that's a wonderful and excellent question a very good one next question out there it's as simple as that you go into the south and the same kind of thing has happened i fought for i have fought for the confederacy for you for four years against the blue belly. send me up to washington and i'll continue to fight against them yes but what are you going to do about the fact that we're paying uh the juke trust to make all of this bagging at prices that are two, three times what they can make a profit of. Yes, as I said, remember the bluebellies up and what? They're not given an answer out there. And so in 1890, the farmers in the prairies, especially and in the South, they're just fed up. And they create something. They, they have a, a fraternal organization. that's called the Farmers Alliance. It helps teach them, you know, what kind of fertilizer to use and better ways of farming. And they basically go into politics and they put their stamp on candidates. If you fit, if you fit the program that we ask for, we vote for you. If you don't, we're going to run a candidate of our own. And in 1890, you've got a full scale cyclone. Uh, in politics. The Republicans are swept out of the House and all across the prairie, you begin to have some of these people. And a year later, they turn themselves into what they call the People's Party, which we often call the Populist Party. And what they're saying is the producer isn't getting what he deserves. And the reason why is because the two major parties are being run by the money power. The money power. You know who that is. That's the railroad corporations out of Chicago and New York and Philadelphia. It's the big banks that hold the mortgage on your property. It's the financiers that control the money supply and are able to keep prices low for the farmers while keeping prices high for the manufactured goods they have to buy. You're not going to get a solution from the Democrats. You're not going to get a solution from the Republicans. You need to vote for the populist party. And so in 1892, they're running a candidate for president on the populist party ticket. And they actually carry a, a bunch of states out west, states that used to go Republican, which is really why Benjamin Harrison just hasn't a chance in the Electoral College.
0: That is that was a great telling of the People's Party and Populist Party. Thank you so Thank much. You. Okay, so we're getting into 1892. We have rampant inequality, a rematch between two candidates who have already been president, this newfangled People's Populist Party, and the net result you mentioned before, Grover Cleveland wins by like a landslide. I mean, not a landslide, but huge. He wins big. The only president to serve non-consecutive terms. Why did he win? How did this stew put him back on top?
1: Well, in large part because of two or three kind of things. One is that if you look at a lot of the Republican states in the West, a lot of Republicans are the ones that are going into the populist party. And I might add, in a lot of those Western states, the Democratic Party locally kind of helps them along by rolling over and playing dead. Because if, in fact, a lot of their people are going to vote, uh, uh, going to vote for somebody, they're not going to vote Republican. And if the Democrats basically only put up a temp token campaign, they're going to vote for the populists, and those states are going to be out of Benjamin Harrison's grab. I mean, it's a natural thing. But it's also, there. there's several other reasons, one of which is that Benjamin Harrison, while he's a competent man and honest and upright man, just has no talent for personal popularity. I mean, you know, uh, it's, yeah, somebody describes shaking his hand as like getting a hold of a wilted petunia. Uh, you know, uh, it was said that, you know, he could take 10,000 strangers and he could make them into friends by making a speech to them. And then he could make them into diehard enemies just by shaking hands with them. I mean, this, this is a real talent out there. Yeah. Which means... Well, let me give you an example of this kind of unpopularity, if I can. It's one of my favorite characters. He's a scoundrel. He's a dishonest man. But, boy, I wish he'd been president. I mean, he was he's just so charming and so on. His name is James G. Blaine. He'd run for president in 1884. Uh, people who supported him were loved him so much that they were referred to as Blainiacs, uh, which is not a bad way. The plumed knight, as he sometimes called himself, the magnetic man. Well, in 1888, the only way Benjamin Harrison wins the nomination is when when Blaine, who's really a lot of people would want for the nomination, says, no, I absolutely refuse to be drafted for the job. I don't want to be president. So Blaine becomes Secretary of State as his reward under Harrison. Well, here's the basic story, and it gives you an idea of why Harrison is so deeply unpopular. Blaine, in fact, there's a governor called Joe Foraker, Fire Alarm Joe Foraker of Ohio and he needs to get uh, two uh, jobs in the Foreign Service for constituents. So he goes to Washington, and he goes into Blaine's office as Secretary of State, and Blaine gets up his face, wreathes, and smiles. Governor Foraker, it's so good to see you. Remember, we spoke on the platform back in 1884. You were absolutely brilliant, and so on. And then taking by the little to tell me, I heard that your father had gone through a very severe illness. You were very fond of your father, weren't you? Well, uh, and Foraker. Oh yes, you know I was. And they began to talk about it. Blaine is sympathetic, and after listening for about fifteen minutes, he says, "Oh, that that's really powerful and moving. I understand how you feel, but and I wish I could do something for you, but I, I, I just there's just nothing available. I, I'll keep you in mind." So Foraker leaves. He's got nothing out of this, but. Boy, he likes this guy. He <laughs> loves playing. And he, but he still wants a job for these guys. So he goes to the White House, and there is Benjamin Harrison. Yes, Governor Fouracre, I'm a very busy man. Please tell me what you want to have done, and uh, uh, so that I can get on with my work. Well, Mister President, I've got these two people. They need foreign service jobs. You want foreign service jobs? All right, you got them. Okay, the doors out there. Goodbye. I'm sorry I can't get up to shake hands with you. We'll see you later. Forker's got everything he wants, and he hates that man. And so this is the token of it. Three days before the Republican convention meets in 1892, it's all locked up. All of the state conventions have chosen delegates. Harrison, as the incumbent president, should be in no trouble at all. Blaine, in a fury over something, resigns as secretary of state. And he hasn't run for the job. He's made clear he won't run for the job. He's a sick man. He's actually probably dying at that time of something called Bright's disease. It's a, it's a I think it's a loop. It's libid, coming up
0: anyway. a lot around this time. Everybody's got, everybody, Chester Arthur. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, like, everybody Chester has
1: this. To yeah, well, in Blaine, you know, well, you know, they don't, it's not exactly as if they have, you know, the various kind of drugs we have today, you know, yeah. and antibiotics and, and, uh, and uh, Blaine, Blaine is a very ill man. And he's resigning, and it's Friday, convention opens on Monday, the sitting president has it all sewn up, and what happens? Over that weekend, Fouracre and a lot of the other politicians get together a bandwagon to try to nominate blame for president over the president of the United States. That's how much they feel about Harrison. They're willing to go into an absolutely hopeless cause to stop this guy from being nominated by their party again, and they've only got three days to assemble it. Well, a guy like this going into the campaign, uh, you know, he's just not going to have enthusiastic support. So many of his supporters are going to go, "Yeah, hooray, (laughs) hooray, yay. And they won't mind if he loses. Yeah. And it has to be added that Harrison also can't really do much campaigning because candidates aren't allowed to campaign. But he's also not paying much attention to the campaign because his wife is dying. And uh, so, you know, the campaign is the last thing on mind. Yeah. So uh, so all of this means that Cleveland has a real chance of winning. And in fact, he manages to do it uh, without without too much trouble.
0: So once elected, what does Cleveland do, kind of in short, with his second term? I'm especially curious, does he act on that election reform we were talking about earlier? I, I can't remember when that comes into effect.
1: Well, Cleveland presides over an economic collapse that basically destroys the Democratic Party for the next 20 years. That's simple
0: enough.
1: Uh, within about, with oh, I guess, within about 30. Uh, three, four months, there's a panic on Wall Street, and it ushers in a massive depression. We're talking unemployment rates in cities of 20%, 40%, 60%. It's very, very bad. You've got jobless people, and there's no kind of work program for them. Uh, When some of them march on Washington, the president won't even see the delegation, and the head of the delegation is arrested and thrown in jail for the nefarious, awful crime of walking on the grass. You begin to look at this and you begin to see why it is that the Cleveland presidency is going to get all the blame. And Cleveland, by this time, is so convinced of right and wrong that he's utterly inflexible in trying to find ways of coping with this depression. And his solutions are, you know, catastrophic. By 1895, you've got senators in his own party who are saying publicly, I hate the very ground that man walks on. You've got a man who wants to become Senator from South Carolina called Ben Tillman, a governor of South Carolina, who tells his constituents out there, "You elect me to the Senate, and I will go and stick a pitchfork in that fat bag of beef in the White House." And, and this is a fellow Democrat out yeah. there. I mean what does this tell you? Yeah uh, you know it's a disturbing thing. It's not that Cleveland's a bad man. he's not. It's not that he's an unprincipled man. He's not. He's a good man. He's an upright man. His last words as he's dying about 20 years after this is, I've tried so hard to do right. And, and he meant that. I mean, that's his, he's a man of conscience. But William Jennings Bryan, you know, as a congressman really sums it up when he says, of course, Grover Cleveland is sincere in his policies. But so are the women sincere who throw their children the crocodiles in the ganges uh, you know uh, you know the sincerity is enough okay that's a that's kind of an answer we got it not sure an answer but it's an answer <laughs>
0: okay all right so I, i'd love to start abstracting a bit and stepping back and you know I, one thing's a little bit history is what can you learn from it how can you compare it to today and it, it feels like, you know, I've started to see some people today saying that the United States today is almost sliding into a second gilded age, which on one hand sounds ridiculous because we do have these child labor laws now, social security, Medicare, we have these social safety nets, but inequality, income inequality is ballooning out of control. Do you think there's a comparison to be made?
1: Yeah. There's a big comparison to be made. The power of very rich people is, is, if anything, stronger than it was back then. Uh, and in fact, the people that are falling through the cracks are are greater in a lot of ways. Uh, more, There's certainly more of them that are falling through the cracks. But I wish that I could be optimistic. But in some ways, I'd almost like to say we should be so lucky as to be in another Gilded Age because what follows the Gilded Age is a time of enormous and tremendous reform that in many ways fixes a lot of these problems, and I do not see that happening. I can see in a lot of the laws that are passing throughout the state level something that in milder form is what created an all-white, old all-democratic old solid South uh, happening, but I, I can't see the recuperative powers there. I mean, to have a recuperative power is you're going to need a William Jennings Bryan. Where is he? You're going to need a Theodore Roosevelt. Where is he? You're going to need a Hiram Johnson of California. Where is he? Uh, they, they're not there. It doesn't exist. So I, I'm less optimistic than you are about, uh, about uh, seeing it. I, I think in many ways, the Gilded Age may in some ways be a little bit more hopeful than today's age because There's more power among reformers to actually get things done. Uh, And that, I think, makes a lot of difference.
0: How did the United States get out of that last Gilder Age? Was it like powerful personalities, Williams, Jennings, Bryan, Theodore Roosevelt? Was there a movement? How did we get out of it? When in
1: large part, what happens is we get out
0: of this because an awful lot
1: of people that would have never touched the populace with a poker and were terrified, of them, saw them as anarchists, uh, uh, socialists, enemies of, uh, of the public order, were also deeply bothered by the power of wealth. And that's in both parties. And they, at the state level, began to transform and change things. Uh, Women's clubs and groups, Mm. uh, people that worked in the settlement houses and the rest, are organizing to change who is an alderman or who is a mayor and to change the laws locally. Well before Theodore Roosevelt becomes president as governor, he's doing things to sort of up the taxes on the utility companies and the railroads to build a State park system to try to provide some forms of labor protection. If you can basically see this reform movement moving upward toward the national level. But it sure helps if you have a person as president like Theodore Roosevelt, who may not get all that much reform legislation through, but boy does he know how to touch a popular nerve, yeah. turning the White House into what he described as a bully pulpit to try to well, together these progressive causes, and of course, he's just so much fun. I mean, you know, he's <laughs> such a wonderfully enjoyable figure in public life that yeah. I mean, you you basically can't keep your eyes off this guy. I mean, there there are reasons why you know the the teddy bear is named for right? Um, you know, he's he's both enormous. Know, for Theodore Roosevelt, simple enough statement about him is. A large number of people saw him as powerful and dangerous and demagogic. Uh, One businessman said, we bought the son of a bitch and he didn't stay bought. Mark Twain believed that he was clearly insane. The ambassador from England told all of his underlings when he took over, he said, you must remember that the president is about six. Uh, (laughs) But then we have the alternative kind of thing of people that just see this man remarkable qualities, uh, there's a reformer and supporter who was sick in bed with the flu in early 1919 when the word came that uh, Theodore Roosevelt had died at the age of 60. And as he said, I could only turn my face to the wall and cry like a child. That, that, you know, A person with that kind of charismatic power is going to be able to get things done. But it also helps if you've got a party system where party lines aren't absolutely frozen. When you've uh, got Republicans and Democrats who both agree on what the problems are. Yeah. And that's exactly what you're finding. Republican Democrats really think that the railroads are enemies and dangerous and tyrannical and monopolistic. And in many ways, they're absolutely right about that. But there's a lot of Republicans, especially ones in the Midwest, whose constituents are just as angry about the railroads and they want something done. And Chuck, you don't have to be a Democrat to think that a system of government where uh, people can basically buy their Senate seats because the legislature-elect Senate is wrong. You don't have to be a Democrat to feel that the rich ought to be paying their fair share and that there ought to be an income tax added to the system. You're going to find Republicans that way too. In other words, the party lines really aren't that hard and fast on these kinds of issues. And that makes every difference in the world. Um, So and I just don't see that happening today. I don't think it's real.
0: Yeah, You're definitely not describing today.
1: (laughs) You know, even in the 1890s, even in the Gilded Age period, if Grover Cleveland wants to put through a a bill, he's going to find some Democrats who aren't going to support it, even though most of them will. And he's going to find some Republicans who will support it. Uh, that, that can make up the difference. I mean, it's not as hard and fast on that, except on issues like race, where sure. the lines are really very sharply divided. Yeah. Uh, and that, that, that makes a difference.
0: Really. So we, we looked at the that Gildedays comparison then today. The I'd love to look at the electoral comparison then to today at the top of the show. I talked about, you know, 1892 is the only time that, um, you know, a former president ran against man defeated him as like the top two guys on the ticket, you know, like with with their parties. And it could happen again in 2024 if we get a Trump-Biden rematch. If we get that rematch in 2024, what do you think that Trump and Biden should try to learn from
1: 1892? Uh, Well, I think the first thing they ought to learn is basic manners by looking at how the two candidates for president ran against each other. Uh, There's no, the the presidential candidates behave presidentially. That's what happens. You make speeches arguing what your principles are. There's never a single personal insult anywhere in there. You may not even refer to the other person. You refer to what our party stands for and why we need it. That, 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 that's one lesson you could learn. The other kind of lesson that you probably could learn about this is uh, actually that, to, you know, to actually pay attention to the voters not to try to stir them up and make them angry, but to try to educate them. Uh, the old fashioned campaigns up to 1884, they're hoopla campaign. you got campaign clubs out there, you got brass bands, you got people uh, on the stump shouting. By 1892, what both parties are doing are trying to do a campaign based on pamphlets and literature and basically teaching the public, all right, this is how the tariff works. This is how it works. Well, this is how it doesn't. This is what's wrong with the way the money supply is working. This is why the farmer and the wage earner are getting the shaft on something like this. And an educational campaign may well mean that. Well, I don't know. This all right. This is a really bad taste comparison. Okay, you may have never seen the movie Ninochka. It's a wonderful Greta Garbo movie, nineteen thirty nine, and she's a Soviet commissar. She's coming to Paris, and this is at the time of the Stalin purge trials. And they say, how are things in Moscow, comrade? And she says, excellent. The latest purge trials were a massive success. There will be fewer but better Russians. (laughs) Well, a lot of the reformers would say that by 1892, by creating a secret ballot where people are allowed to make choices rather than just vote blindly for their party, and where they're being educated with information, you're creating, in some sense, fewer but better voters. Those voters out there that you know, just don't want to learn the issues or intricacies of the ballot, may well choose to stay at home. Those who read up on the issues will know what they're voting for, which means they can turn their heat up on whoever is elected president to see that he delivers. Uh, so a campaign of education, it's got a lot to be said for it. I'd be surprised if anybody's ever going to put that across, because demagoguery almost always works so much better. But you know, that that's kind of the way it would work.
0: All right. Well, the last two questions I got for you are two questions. By I Every interview with, and we're going back to Grover Cleveland. And, and the first yes. one is what is the lasting legacy of Grover Cleveland?
1: I have two legacies. One is, I think, uh, the idea, as he as he would put it, public office is a public trust. In other words, you don't use office to get rich. You use it to serve the public and give them what they need. And you don't try to look for what constituencies you can appeal to. One of the wonders about Cleveland, for example, is if you were a campaign contributor in 1884, that's almost the perfect way to make sure that when you come to the White House, he is not going to give you what you want. He won't do that. Uh, that, And that vision out there of, of, of a basic example of integrity, is something that was so badly needed in the White House, and he's good at that, but the second lesson he really teaches is honesty isn't enough. In the, the second term out there, he's not. his honesty makes him believe that he's absolutely right and nobody else who disagrees with him is wrong. He can't compromise. He can't make deals. He can't get things done, and that's where that honesty is absolutely lethal when the democratic party loses the congress in 1894 it's not going to get back in control of the congress for 16 years it's not going to win the presidency until 1912 and then only because there's three candidates running (laughs) Uh, they're not going to get a majority of the vote until 1932. Uh, so those are the basic lessons
0: the last question I was going to ask actually you you kind of hit on it it's what lessons in leadership do you think we can learn from Cleveland is that it the, the honesty one or do you have one more that you can throw at me for bonus points
1: Oh my um I ge- I guess the other kind of thing is don't lash out at those people that uh, that attack you even personally just do your best to ignore it out there and if there's a scandal do what he did tell the truth and be outright that that's all you want because that's what he does in 1884 there's a scandal about his having a relationship with maria halpin and the democratic leaders are saying all right how do we cover this how do we deny it do we start throwing mud at james g blaine and they go up to albany and and, and cleveland says tell the truth and he says he says the ministers who come i'm not going to give you the fact go up to buffalo talk to the other people who know about it." They'll give you the facts out there. Then you come back and answer any other questions you've got. Now, that's a kind of an ability to stand up against uh, contumely and insults and the rest and an ability to essentially put the truth first that I wish every politician, not just presidents, would learn and take as their mantra. But, hey, I'm a Gilded Age person. What can I tell you? <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm probably the only person with a rotary dial cell phone.
0: So, uh, <laughs> well it has been a delight talking to uh mark professor oh, summers uh, i hope my you. listeners enjoyed this too if you guys want to hear more from him again he has numerous books out there was checking out on the gilded age like the era of good stealings or rome romanism and the rebellion uh you can always i guess take a course at university of kentucky try and catch him there uh thank you so much for your time mark
1: oh my pleasure and thank you for having me It's most kind of you can
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always good to hear from you. I so appreciate those five-star reviews. Uh, You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories to helps me write books and pay to host the show. And thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Olgar Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode. I'll talk to Matthew Algio about Grover Cleveland's secret cancer surgery on a yacht, his attempts to take down the journalists who reported on it, and what it tells us about Cleveland's legacy. That's next time on The Bridge Presidential Histories.